Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We meet former F1 tester Max Wilson to hear about his uniquely eclectic racing career. Motorsport world is littered with drivers who come close to racing in Formula One with tales of opportunities lost that often go untold. Today's guest is a driver who came about as close to an F1 seat as you can without racing, but went on to have a very diverse career that in recent times has made him a leading light in one of the world's great hidden gem championships. I'm your host, Ed Straw, and our star guest today is Max Wilson. Now, those of you from Brazil listening, and we know there are a few from our, our download data, will probably be familiar with Max from his success in V8 stock cars. It's nice to be here with you, Ed, and thanks for inviting me over here. Yes, I've been in Brazil for about 10 years now after being, you know, in Europe, United States and Australia, racing all different sort of cars. And uh, so I have been back here 10 years ago, and so far I have been doing the stock car championship. And for the people that are not very familiar with this series, it's a, it's a national championship, but I think it's one of the toughest 
championships around the world, you know, very good drivers and teams. So it's been really enjoyable to be part of it. Well, we'll talk a bit about uh, Stock Cars fairly shortly. We're also joined by Autosport's longtime Brazilian correspondent, Lito Cavalcanti. Uh, now you work quite closely with Max in your, uh, in your commentary role, don't you? Yes, yes. We've been together on TV. Max is also a TV commentator, not only a racing driver. Uh, it's been... It's been quite a, a enjoyable time because we are also good friends and well, okay, he's been doing very, very well here. Let's see what the future will bring. Well, let's start off with more recent years and talk about the uh, the Brazilian Stock Car Championship because I think it is a hidden gem of a series. People outside Brazil, I mean, some people will be aware of it, but it's 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 not a championship with a high international profile, but it is ferociously competitive isn't it you know you've been in it full-time since 2009 I think exactly you won the title in 2010 you've you've been a consistent front runner and I think people will be familiar with a lot of the names that appear in it but there's also some uh some local drivers who are serious seriously good so how good is that championship what's what's the level like in it uh, I would say that uh, is it's a, in a very high level as far as drivers are concerned you know you have guys like you know Ex F1 guys, former F1 drivers like uh, Barrichello, Ricardo Zonta, uh, Pisonia, Luciano Burti was driving in stock cars for a long time until three, four years ago. I think he he stopped it. So as far as drivers are concerned, you know, it's a I think one of the most uh, strong championships that I have been to and uh, that I know of. And as far as you know, the, the series itself, you know, it's a very strong series too. But, you know, of course, you know, in Brazil, we don't have the same resources as, you know, people having in, in England or, UK or Europe, Australia, United States. So the cars are a lot simpler than a DTM car, for example, or a V8 supercar. Our budget, they are not, it's not as high as those championships around the world. But I would say that uh, as far as competitiveness, it's, it's very hard to, to be a front runner, you know, and uh, it's very enjoyable to be racing in our own, own country where, you know, we can live from racing, which, you know, years ago we didn't have a series in Brazil that we could, you know, afford to be living out of our professional here in Brazil. So that's why all of us went to Europe and other places abroad that uh, we couldn't do our job in Brazil. So f- with the growth of the stock cars in the recent years, you know, we are able to do so. So uh, it's a very, you know, different championship in the way that the cars are all the same for all the teams. So in the difference between the teams is pretty much, you know, the setup that we use or how well we can build that car is a different com- uh, ser- is a different format, for example, from the V8 supercars that, you know, every single team, they can build their own engines and the DTM have different brands of cars. So it's a, it's a very unique championship, but it's one of the toughest to, to be, you know, there and uh, especially running at, at the front. And Lita, obviously, this is a championship you follow very closely for, for, for many years. And it's, um, it's been a big championship for quite a long time now. And just think back in the past, and it was drivers like Ingo Hoffman and Chico Serra were at the front of it, kind of the, an old generation of, of Brazilian drivers, but who had great success, uh, success back here. But what's the championship like to watch? Is there anything else you can kind of compare it to? I mean, I guess we've got a fair few British listeners. British touring cars is kind of a comparison point. It's one of those sort of special touring car series, apparently, because I think the term stock car perhaps in Europe means it's something a little bit different. You think kind of short ovals, cars banging into each other, but it's, you know, it's, it's serious cars, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it is, uh, well, you could compare it uh, with 
BTCC and in uh, in a way with DTM, but uh, Reason is much closer than DTM, much much closer, and there's a lot of door bangings and you know um, it's it's tough racing, it's tough tough racing, and the cars are exactly the same the same thing the the springs uh, shock absorbers all all of them are the same. So uh, when you look at the grid. Uh, after qualifying, the difference are in hundreds of seconds. And sometimes in one tenth you have five, six, seven cars. So it's maybe if you blink an eye, you lose your pole position and you're going to start fifth or something like that. So it's really, really tough. And when you have such a proximity between uh, the cars, you have, uh, I would say, it's, it's breathtaking. The, the first laps are breathtaking. And there are Two, two, two races per weekend, per Sunday. In the first race, they still think of the second one. But in the second race, they say, well, nothing to save, and they go for it. It's, it's risk-taking. So that just sounds like they all crash in the second race. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Most of them. As Lito mentioned, we have two races per, per round, so they are back-to-back -back races. So it's a different format. For example, when I was in Australia, you know, the races, we had three races over the weekend, but we had like one race Saturday, one race Sunday morning, another one in the afternoon. In Brazil, in the stock car series, we have like 15 minutes gap between the races. So we really have to be, if you're thinking about the championship, you really have to be, you know, considering finishing both races. But we have 30 drivers and not all of them are thinking about, you know, the championship itself. They are thinking about just the moment. So sometimes they get a bit too aggressive and the crashes happen, which the crowd sort of, you know, enjoy those sort of things too. But as Lito mentioned, it's a very close racing, mainly because the cars are all the same for everybody. So therefore, you know, we have, everybody has the same equipment. The drivers are really good. Not only the, the ones that I mentioned, you know, Barrichello's and Pisonias, there are a lot of Brazilian drivers that never raced abroad, but they are very competitive too. You know, they came from a Brazilian background, you know, go-karting and some Brazilian series. And now they're really competitive in these sort of cars, which are very unique to drive. And they are so difficult, those cars and this championship, that every once in a while I want to have like a co-driver race, which we have every first round of the championship. For the last few years, we, we have, you know, drivers from Europe, like, you know, former F1 drivers, Jack Villeneuve, and uh, so many other strong names, they get here and they struggle to do well because it's a very tough championship. Sounds like it's got a lot in common with a lot of these very specialised categories exactly. like DTM, for example, exactly. supercars in Australia. I mean, you obviously were very familiar with the championship when you started to do it, but were you surprised when you got into it how, how difficult it was? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a very good question because... Uh, the stock cars, you know, this championship has been here for about 40 years already. But I would say for the last, you know, 15 or thereabouts, that's where it started to be really high level. Before that, you know, there were very good drivers like, you know, Ingo Hoffman, for example. But there were also some amateur drivers that were part of it. In the last 10 or 15 years, we only had, you know, sort of professional drivers and very good ones. So before I started uh, back in 2009, I was following the Stock Car Championship from, from, from far. I was in Australia before that. And uh, when the opportunity came for me to start in this, 
in the championship, I was sort of, you know, it's a big responsibility because I was racing sort of successfully for so long, you know, in many different championships. And you sort of, you know, a bit scared of how good can I do in this championship because there were drivers that I knew they were very good, like Ricardo Zonta, for example. And he was struggling big time to get some good results. And when you watch that, you know, in some ways you get a bit, you know, concerned about if you can do good or not. But the other hand, at least for me, is a challenge. And challenges are also, you know, for me is the main thing for me. I really enjoy to be challenged by whatever, you know, as far as my profession is concerned. So I decided to start and give it a crack at it, see what happened. And that was very impress impressive how difficult it was to, to be competitive. But mainly because I think I was doing a very tough championship beforehand, you know, which was the V8 supercar in Australia. And it's a similar sort of car, it's a touring car as well, you know, so I had a lot of experience before I came into stock cars, like, you know, banging doors, as Lito mentioned, and uh, scrubbing here and there with, you know, touring cars. So for me, it wasn't as hard because I had some experience, you know, with, with the V8 supercar, which is another great championship to be involved with. But, you know, of course, when I got here, I was a bit surprised how difficult it was. But luckily for me, I managed to be, first of all, in a very good team from the very first day, which is the team I'm still driving for. And uh, so I think all those things helped me to start. We'll certainly get on to, uh, to your time in Australia in a minute. But I just wanted to ask you, Lito, let's talk about driving as professionals. So, I mean, how many genuinely professional drivers are there in, in stock cars? I know sometimes the waters are muddied with drivers with sponsorship, etc. But, but how many drivers are, are making a living out of that series? Well, I think uh, just uh, without counting one per one, I would say at least, at least 20 drivers in a 30 cars a grid. At least. I agree with you. Yeah, I think at least 20 guys are really living, making a living out of... Uh, and making a good living. Yeah. Out of these 20 drivers that are making a living out of the stock car, I think, let's say, maybe half of them, maybe 10 of the drivers, these 20 drivers, those 20 drivers are hired in our contract to be driving. And the other half, the other 10 guys, they have their own sponsorship that they bring into the teams and they make a living out of this format as well. So I would say that out of the 30 drivers, at least 20 are making a living out of it, which I think is a very healthy number for a national championship, especially nowadays that, you know, in, in Brazil mainly, the economy is very, you know, difficult here. There are a lot of things happening, you know, as far as politicians and a lot of things. So I think it's a very healthy number for the moment. Well, certainly comparing it to most championships in the world, that's that's extremely strong, and it's even if he's comparing to you know perhaps with F one, you know yeah, yeah, F one, yeah. I don't think the rate is as good as the stock cars as yeah, far as getting paid for. And I guess it's it's good that that's one thing there is for Brazilian drivers such as yourself. I guess you always had in the back of your mind as it was growing that you could come back and and, and move into it. No, that's a good point because you know I mean we are all drivers, you know, all professionals, but we are also you know before and more than anything, we are human beings, you know, to be, I'm very, you know, I feel blessed to be able to, you know, throughout my career, be able to see different places, live in different countries, you know, and uh, see different cultures and everything. But uh, I'm Brazilian, you know, and uh, when I found myself in a situation where I could make a living in my own, you know, place, my own country, it's a very good thing, you know, to be f close to my friends and family, 
and make a living out of my passion, which is my job, you know, which is racing. So it's a very nice feeling to be able to to do your job, you know, your own, you know, your own place as well. It's been quite good. Well, let's talk a bit about your time in Australia. Now, I know we're sort of going backwards through your career. We will uh, throw back to, to the early days shortly. I'm just uh, double-checking my dates. But it's unusual for a Brazilian driver to find their way into the V8 Supercar Championship, which was then called in Australia. You ended up over there in 2002. So how, how did you get there? <laughs> it's hard plane, to believe. I presume, literally, but... <laughs> you know, it was a very unique situation. And basically, what happened was, at the end of 2001... I was 2001, I did the IndyCars back in the States, which was card back then. Uh, in November of that year, a friend of mine, which is also a racing car driver, his name is Flavio Figueredo, he raced in the UK back in the days in the Vector Challenge for a couple of years. But anyway... Very, he, very briefly in British touring cars. Exactly. But he was hardly when he was in He raced uh, with, uh, I think it was alongside Derek Warwick, for one round, one because he was a replacement for the driver that was on that team in BTCC, I remember that. But he got married in November of 2001, and I was one of his best men. So I came over from, from uh, Indianapolis, where I used to live, to his wedding. So I was here for like a week, and I, was, I stayed at my parents' place. And one day I got home, and my dad said, listen, you know, there was a guy, a German guy that uh, called you, and who wants to talk to when he he left his number here. So anyway, I, I got his number, and I saw the area code, which was 61. And I thought to myself, I don't never heard of, you know, this 61 area code. Anyway, I found out that was Australia, Australian uh, area code. So I called this guy, and uh, he introduced himself. His name is Alex. He is actually German, uh, sorry, Austrian. And luckily, my parents, they speak German. So when he called my parents, you know, my home in Brazil, my parents' home in Brazil, my, my dad answered the phone and he's able to speak German. So he could communicate with this guy because, for instance, if it was the, the maid that worked at my parents' place, she wouldn't be able to, to communicate. So he called me. So I called him back and uh, he was talking to me and I uh, said, Max, I, I used to work in F3 Towns for Astromiga back in the day. And after that, I went to DTM and uh, was there for a couple of years with Mercedes and so on. And um, now I'm working a very strong championship. It's a very good championship. And I would like to know if you're interested interested to, to talk about it. But he didn't mention what championship he was talking about. But anyway, so I listened, what championship you're talking about? And he mentioned V8 supercars, which I didn't know much at all about the V8 supercars. I, I remember that... Uh, when I was in Europe and also in, in States that I used to watch a little bit here and there of the races, but I didn't know much about it. And he said to me, would you like to come over and to have a look? And I said, yes, like, you know, if Australia was across the bridge from my house. <laughs> it was a bit crazy, but I, you know, I jumped in the plane about three days later. I went to Australia, and uh, when he picked me up at the airport, he took me straight into the team uh, base. And when I got there, I was so impressed, impressed because the team, the V8 supercar team that he used to work with was like a lot bigger than the IndyCar team that I used to drive back in the States. And uh, so I had a look at the team and uh, he introduced me for the team owner. And I was in Australia for about five days. I was very, very well impressed about what I saw. But the thing that impressed me the most about Australia, there is nothing to do with racing was the country itself, 
and also the people you know like uh, Australian people were so nice they were so friendly so humble and uh, I I met the guy that was that was one of the drivers that was already hired for that team which is Tony Longhurst I don't know if you heard of him but he's such a nice guy and in the meantime the team owner said Lisa Max would like to have a test in the car and I knew that he wanted to test me not me to test the car and I thought to myself, if I drive this car now, I might be embarrassed because it's a twin car that I'm not very used with. It's a left-hand gearbox and uh, sitting on the right-hand side of the car, which, you know, I used to drive on the road in the UK when I lived there, but I never driven a car on the track sitting on the right-hand side of the car. But I thought to myself, you know, I traveled this far, so let's give it a go. So I, I jumped in the car and luckily, for some reason, I sort of, you know, did the right because a lot of the drivers that came from many different places that never, never driven a V8 supercar, they really struggle because not only because of the position that you drive, that car has a lot of horsepower, there isn't much grip. And uh, I remember that a lot of good drivers that came from Europe or from anywhere really had a hard time to drive those cars and somehow I didn't have that much difficulty to drive it. Well, the thing, the thing I always um, remember being told, if I've got my ears right, that they were quite rear-limited, weren't they, in terms of the, the rear tyres. So yeah. people think of them as kind of cars you can really attack with. But with that power in the rear end, you really had to kind of keep it in line. So it's quite a precise it's, driving style, isn't it? It's a very precise in driving style because it's exactly what you mentioned. You don't have much grip at all. You don't have much downforce. Those cars they had back then, and I think they, they still have this similar 650 horsepower or thereabouts, a bit more, and not much grip. So actually, it's a very unique driving style. And uh, to be quite honest, when I came to Brazil to do the stock cars, I kind of struggled a little bit because stock cars is sort of the opposite. You don't have that much horsepower compared to a V8. We have about 480 in the stock cars. And you have more grip than the V8 supercars. You have more downforce and more general grip so but anyway so it's a very unique a car to drive and also you have very different tracks especially Bathurst you know I mean that's something that uh, is very intimidating for anybody that gets there by the first time and but you know I was very lucky that uh, I sort of you know got used with the car fairly quickly comparing to a lot of drivers and therefore I got hired to to the job so I was very very lucky in that way and Australia for me was, in some ways, very good because I lived in a place that was, for me, is just an amazing place to live. I was in a very strong championship. But for myself, I sort of have a, a sort of a sour feeling that I have some unfinished business in Australia because I didn't fight for any championship. You know, I didn't win any races over there. You know, I was always a front runner most of the time. But I changed teams a lot, and uh, I was in luck with the changes. I never got really in a situation where I had a winning car. Well, the one that stands out is you left Triple Eight. I left Triple Eight just as Triple Eight was yeah. about to exactly. explode as a actually. As a I was team there up. their first year, and the first year was really bad. You know, they really struggled a lot, and the car was breaking down all the time. And then I left. So I think it was a mix of uh, bad choices and. Uh, and for me, you no, know, I spent about six seasons over there. And uh, if you ask me, in my career, if I have some sort of uh, 
uh, sour feeling in my mouth about something, I would say it's about Australia because I would like to have done better there. And uh, but now I think it's a bit, you know, not too late. But I'm don't, I don't see myself going back to Australia. Actually, I had the opportunities opportunities to go back there after I came back to Brazil. You know, a lot of teams invited me to come back there to be racing full time again. I was very tempted to go there. Mainly because of this, you know, I, I wanted to, to go back there and fight for a championship, which didn't happen when I was there. But other things happened in my life. You know, I got married and then I got my son, which is the most important thing for me. So I thought to myself, you know, it's, I think the time to be venturing myself around the world, you know, traveling from here and living in different places. I think my time is, is already, you know, to do these sort of things already gone. So let me focus in Brazil and in different careers like, you know, TV commentator as well. So, but I, I have some, some mixed feelings about the Australian times. So you mentioned bad decisions. So was it your choice to move on from Triple Eight? Because they, they signed Lowndes, didn't they? That they was had, the big back deal. then, the, the drivers on that first year was myself and Paul Radzic, which is one of the, not only a great driver, but a really good guy. You know, I really, actually, all my teammates in Australia were really good fun. You know, Tony Longhurst, which was my first one, we are still friends. We're talking to, you know, nowadays, uh, sometimes I go to Australia to visit them. But uh, the drivers for the 05 season was meant to be Craig Lowndes, and myself, because Paul Radzic was already uh, signed off, sort of thing. And what's his name? Roland Dane, which he, I think is still under the v, the Triple Eight team in Australia. He was a really hard guy to deal with, you know. And he, you know, nothing personally against him, but he was a guy that he used to run the business, and not in a way that it, you know was suited for my my way. I think so. We used to clash a lot, myself and Roland. And there was a time towards the end of that 2004 season that uh, we are not agreeing a lot of things. And then we sort of, you know, we are not getting along very well. And actually, Roland said, listen, you know, so you're out. I said, okay, that's not a problem. And they hired Winkup, which, you know, did amazingly afterwards. But you know what? Uh, for me, if you say, oh, Max, you moved from AAA in the wrong time, in some ways, yes, but in the other, you know, in the other ways, uh, I'm a professional racing car driver. I really care about my professional. But before anything, I would like to get along with, to work with people that I think are good people. Not saying that Roland Dane is good people, but you know, instead of being a good team with people that I really don't trust much or don't get along well, which is very not very usual for me because I'm very easy to get along with. I'm in the same team for 10 years. You know, that's I think, shows how easy I'm to get along with. But I think it was in the both ways, Roland, Triple uh, A decision, and also my decision. I didn't want to stay there anymore. Roland, I think, didn't want me to stay there anymore, too. We never thought about it. He just decided to go different ways. And to be quite honest, if I was still there after 2004, perhaps I could have done well or win championships as well, which never happened. But I don't have any regrets to left to had left to Triple Eight back then. Well, Ito, following what Max was doing in Australia uh, from from over here, was there a lot of interest in general in Brazil, and was it good for you to be able to follow a Brazilian driver in such an unusual place? Yes, uh, there was there was huge interest because Max has always, as you say, he's a, a very nice guy, a very easygoing guy, and and he had made some uh, appearance here in Brazil. 
uh, that uh, were remarkable. And people start to, to, to follow his career. But at those days, internet was not so uh, complete about news that is, as it is today. And people were looking for, asking about, uh, but we didn't have much uh, news about him as we would like. Anyway, there was, yes, there was a, a, a big expectation about him, about what he would do there, what, what he would do there. But uh, things really uh, got to its, uh, to a more intense point when he came back to Brazil. Because uh, it was already uh, a tough category, stock cars, but there weren't at those days so many uh, potentially winning drivers. And we said, well, he's going to, what was he going to do? He's going to be champion easily. Well, I wouldn't say easily, but he was champion in his second season, isn't it? And yes, there was, there was always a big expectation about him. Since that ITC race that he came out of the blue and in five minutes he was the new national hero. Well, this is a race we, we should talk about um, going much back, going back much earlier in your career to 1996. And I remember that, well, this was before I was working as a, as a journalist when I was just a fan. I always used to watch the, well, the DTM and obviously the ITC, which was the, the, the sort of international version. There's great class one touring cars. And I remember watching on German television the, the Interlagos race and you said, well, who's, who's this Max Wilson guy who's, who's leading in, on a one-off appearance with, with, with Alpha? And that's what I think, Lito, you've described it before as kind of the most important race of your career because suddenly you were Max you were a, a driver that people had had heard of and you know that championship was so competitive and specialized to to lead for so long and you finished second in the end in the end behind Lorini I think who um perhaps you weren't encouraged to fight too much <laughs> if, it, if memory serves but how do you look back on that opportunity how did it happen and what and, and was it as important to, to your career do you think uh, I would say that uh, I uh, actually I, I said that many times before I, w I think that race was the most important race of my career uh, mainly because that year which was back in 1996 was a very difficult year for me uh, 1996 was the first year that I went to Europe first time I moved out of my parents you know house and uh, and it was a difficult year because I went to do the F3 in Germany which turned out to be a very difficult situation for me because I started with a team which is used to be called Tokmakidis and that guy uh, he bought that team from Willy Weber you know Willy Weber and uh, I ended up in Germany because Willy Weber saw me in a F3 race in, in Argentina actually we went F3 we used to be a South American championship and I won that round. It was uh, a support race for the F1 in that year. So Willy Weber came over on the podium and introduced himself and gave me his business card and invited me to go to, to make a test in his team, which used to be called WTS, where Michael Schumacher and Ralph and uh, many other drivers, Verstappen, Jos Verstappen back then, and I think all those guys drove for that team. Well, it must have been pretty amazing because obviously Weber, everyone associates with Michael Schumacher. So to have, have him approaching you, yeah. Must have been something no, <laughs> pretty amazing. Something I didn't expect. You know, actually, when he gave me his business card, uh, I thought to myself, "Man, he told me to call him up, and uh, he offered me a test on his team." And to be quite honest, I thought to myself, "I'm not calling this guy. I'm gonna call him a couple of days later. He won't remember who I am." 
I thought it was just uh, you know, one of those things that happened in the moment, in the heat of the moment. But anyway, I called him and uh, we arranged the day to go to Hockenheim to do a F3 test. So I went to Hockenheim and uh, Weber showed up and Franz Toast, which is the team boss of uh, Toro Rosso now uh, in F1, he was the 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 guy which he used to run the F3 team for Willy Weber. And uh, I did you know, my test day there. And uh, Willy Weber offered me a, a, champ, a season, you know, for the following year, in, which used uh, was meant to be 1996. That all happened in 1995. So, and towards of 1995, Willy Weber contacted me again. See, listen, Max, I just sold my team for this guy. I'm not having this team anymore. I mentioned to this guy that I had sort of hired you, but. Uh, Instead of racing, sort of being contract to race, which was meant to be for by Willy Weber, I had to pay to drive, you know, in F3, German F3, which it was sort of normal, but for someone that was hired to be racing German F3, therefore I had to be paying for it. But anyways, I, I arranged some sponsorship, which I already had, like Petrobras and some other supporters that I had back then. I went to this to drive for this guy a couple of races after I started. Actually, the first race I won in Hockenheim, the first round I won. But I already knew that the, that guy was trouble. So three races down the road, you know, the guys that used to live with me, Brazilian guys, that was driving, that they were driving for him in a Formula Opel, the German Formula Opel. They came back to Brazil. I didn't have where to live anymore because those guys used to share an apartment with me. So I ended up, you know, moving to another place uh, with a, a girl that I just met that used to work for Talk Kitties, and she, you know, bought me a, a, a bedroom in her place. I stayed there for three months, and then I moved for an Italian team, which is Prema, and I used to do the German F3 and the Italian F3. So I, I did the German F3, driving for Prema, and I moved to Italy. And uh, all the races, I used to go back and forwards from Italy to Germany. And one of those races that I was going to, which I think was Deep Holes on Norris Ring, I sat on the plane, and there was this guy sitting alongside me, you know, with all those shirts from race team, which was from Alfa Romeo, the Martini team, the official Alfa team. And he started to talk with me, and he used to work for Brainbow back in the day. And uh, he said, Max, you know, over the weekend, you know, come over to have a look in the cars and, and these sort of things. I said, yes, and he was a very nice guy. His name is Dario Rossi. I don't know if you heard of him, but uh, on that particular weekend, uh, our car was not competitive in any round because you used to run Fiat engines back then. And all the other German teams used to have Opel. And the Fiat engine was as competitive. But that round in particular rained. So on the way, you know, the engine difference didn't show up as much. So I ended up winning the race. So on the way back to to Italy, I, I was at the airport, and this Dario Ross came over, you know, to congratulate me. Say hey, congratulations, and start to talk. And then and then he mentioned, ah, do you know that we're gonna have a ETC round, ITC round, a couple of months later? I said yes, and I sort of joked with him. I said, listen. If you need a driver, if Alfa Romeo needs a driver, I live just beside the Interlagos track. I was just kidding. And then he laughed, and I laughed. And then a couple of minutes later, another uh, person uh, just arrived, which his name is 
Mr. Pienta, Giorgio Pienta, which used to be the boss of motors, uh, Alfa Romeo Motorsport. And then this Dario Rossi came to Mr. Pienta, introduced to me, and Pienta knew that I had won the race in F3 in that weekend, and he con congratulated me, me, saying, oh, Max, no, Fiat didn't win a race in F3 here in Germany for, I don't know, 10 years or whatever. And then you know, this guy from Brembo said, listen, he said that he can drive the ITC car in Interlagos. And Mr. Pienta gave me a business card as well. So, again, I called him a couple of days later. I used to live in Vicenza back in the day that I was close to Venice. And uh, he told me to go to Milan to, to go to the Yaz race team to do a seat fitting. So I went there, did a seat fitting. A week later, went to Mugello for a test day, which all the teams were there. And I would say that was that was one of the hardest days of my career so far because I sat on that car in Mugello, which is I never had been to Mugello before. And Mugello is one of the toughest track as far as everything. It's a very fast track, you know, up and down the hill, wide corners and everything. But uh, the first day, I thought to myself, man, I cannot do it. I was like way off the pace, very insecure driving that car. The car used to move a lot. You know, those cars were four-wheel drive, ABS, paddle shift, active suspension, all new things for me at the same time. But the first day was really difficult. I did about 10 laps. And the second day, I was sitting at the pit garage. I was really, really tense you know I was really nervous about the whole thing and then something happened that was really a uh, change for me a big change I was sitting there and then that guy um, the German driver what's his name again I remember his name in a, in a bit he used to be a F, former F1 driver and he was doing DTM uh, ITC that year and he became a TV commentator for the German TV as well Anyway, we're going to remember his name in a bit. Christian Dunner. Exactly. Oh, Thank Dunner. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I knew Dunner from watching him in F1 before that. I never had met the guy. And Christian, for whatever reason, he came to our garage. He used to drive for one of the official Alpha teams. And he came to Yas, which was the team I was driving for that day. And he introduced himself. I was maybe 21, 22 years old back then. Christian, I think he was about 40 or thereabouts. And he introduced himself and he said, Max, how are you doing? You know, how is it going so far? And I sort of, you know, I saw the guy which was a bit older. I said, listen, Christian, it's not, go it's not going very well at all. You know, I'm really struggling. This car is really strange to drive. This track is really difficult. And he talked to me maybe for five minutes. But he was so nice to me. He brought out my heart rate from 180 back to 80 sort of thing. So when I jumped in the car, I was a lot more relaxed because of this conversation with Christian Denner, you know, only because of that. And then I start to sort of, you know, do a ride in the car. And by the end of the days, the day, uh, the guys from the team said, listen, you're, if you want to, you're, con you know, hired to be, to do the Brazilian round. So it was a very different way to get into a racing sort of thing. I wasn't expecting to be part of that race because it was a very high level racing. I was only an F3 driver back then not very experienced. Uh, the names that were, you know, talking about to be part of this race in Brazil was Emerson Fittipaldi, which ended up, you know, being christened because Emerson had an uh, IndyCar accident. 
For the Opel seat, it was meant to be Ricardo Rosat. For whatever reason, he didn't make the race, and Tony Cannon did. And they ended up putting me there, which was very good, because on the race in Brazil, it started to rain in the second race. Maybe because of a bit of a local knowledge, I sort of, you know, went to, to, to the lead, and then I pulled away. And towards the end of the race, Larini catched me. They told me to let him go, which, you know, is part of the game. I was just doing one off round, so it's all good for me. And ended up finishing second. And that race, you know, opened a lot of doors as far as, you know, showing my name, or even in Brazil, that not many people knew me because I was starting my career. And then, you know, some uh, sponsorship, you know, arrived in the scene as well, which, you know, managed to follow my career in the following year, which was already in F3000 in, in Europe. Well, Lito, how big a deal was, was Max's performance in that, in that race? Oh, it was a real big deal because it was uh, shown live on TV, you know. And then the names to, to keep an eye on were Christian Fittipaldi and Tony Canaan because they were already famous drivers with a much bigger CV than, than Max. And suddenly uh, Max comes from, uh, when it started to, to rain, Max come from 12s or something like this, and in one lap he was 10s, 8s, 5s, and then he was leading. And, well, what's happening? Who's this guy? Of course, the, the motorsport uh, guys knew who was him, but TV people didn't, didn't know. And the speaker, I was uh, commentating that race, and the speaker, uh, he was much more used to Formula One and football and... Every, every, every sport, but he only knew about Formula One in motorsport. And he was kind of, you know, so excited, you know, and he was, look, look what that guy's doing, Lito, who's this guy? And then I, I started said, well, this is Max Wilson. He, but anyway, what he's doing is remarkable. And it, it, was, it was really, really exciting, that race. And suddenly Max was a big name here. And that, of course... Led, laid the foundations to do 3000 which led to the Formula 1 opportunities um, 3000 you were strong in although never won a race but it's had some good front running results but let's look at the big the big F1 opportunity because the F1 shot seat you almost had was Minardi wasn't it yes. that was in fact you basically had been told you, you had it exactly the F1 F3000 my first season was 1997 with Edinburgh and I stayed with Edinburgh for the 1998 season as well in 1999, I went to David Sears. David Sears back then, he used to have Supernova. And he started his second team, which was a sort of a you know, Williams Jr. team. Because uh, at the end of 1919, sorry, yeah, 1997, when I, my f- first F3000 year, uh, Williams was looking to uh, hire two test drivers. Before that was a French guy which used to be the test driver for them. I, I forgot his name was... Uh, the Jubillon, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, the exact Bouillon, yeah. And uh, because back then F1 tested quite a bit, they were looking to hire... Bouillon just had left the team for whatever reason, and they were looking to hire two drivers. So Williams took, you know, four drivers to do sort of a shootout out of the F3000, which was myself, Montoya and uh, Ayari, and also they took uh, Nicholas Minassian, which was doing British F- F3 back then, 
where he was doing really good. He actually didn't win, didn't win that championship because he fought with him, somebody on the track and yeah, he was Michael suspended. Benton, Michael Benton at Thruxton, yeah, exactly, famous incident. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, out of these four drivers, those four drivers, Williams hired myself and Montoya. So that's how I started to be a test driver for Williams already in 1998. So I was doing uh, F3000 and test driving. And then the following year, which... Uh, was 1999 i went to david sears and that year was a year for me okay now you have a chance a real chance to win because edinbridge was a, a right team but it wasn't you know the best team like supernova or astromiga or teams like those so i started the championship as one of the favorites myself and nick heidfeld all the pre-seasons pre-season testing Either myself or Nick were leading, you know, first and second, second and first. The first round was in Imola. I started on pole and Nick took me off, you know, halfway through the race I was leading. And then uh, the second round, I finished, I think, third or something like this. And back then, I think we used to have about 10 races, 10 rounds altogether. And uh, after four rounds, I had some strong runs, but some DNFs as well. So the second half of the season was the one that had some catch-up to do. But then, I know, the fifth round or thereabouts, my car was really bad. Sixth round, the same. So all the following races, my car was really, really not competitive at all. And I was also always talking to the team, you know, there is something wrong, and they never found anything wrong. And then the second last race, I think, was in Austria. Uh, the qualifying system in F3000 was like this. First of all, there was no free practice. We went straight to qualifying. And uh, used to qualifying one car per team. So out of those two cars, you know, myself and Bruno Junqueira, I used to go first, and then his group used to go second or vice versa. In Austria, in A1 rank, uh, I spun off in the last corner. Sorry, I didn't spin off. I, my car broke down. And I jumped, you could jump in your teammate's car. So I jumped in Bruno's car to do the, la the, the rest of the qualifying. When I jumped in Bruno's car, I said, listen, now I'm 100% sure there is something wrong with my car because Bruno's car was completely different than mine. So anyway, the qualifying was over and I talked to the team and I went back to the hotel. I was kind of upset because already it was already like four or six races that my car wasn't competitive. You ended up getting, you know, very, very frustrated about it. So I was in the hotel, and my girlfriend back then was with me, and uh, somebody knocked on my door, which was Paul Jackson, which used to be my engineer. And I used to get along well with Paul, and also with everybody in the team. They were very nice people to work with. And Paul came with a sort of a sad face towards me, and said, Max, I need to talk to you. I said, all right, let's, let's go. So I, I went to his room and he said, listen, Max, we found a problem in your car. And uh, this problem has been in your car, unfortunately, for the last five or six races. And we just found today. I'm sorry about it. And that's it. And the problem they found uh, back five or six races before that, they had put the gearbox apart. And when they built the gearbox back together again, the differential, they you know, the, the, the ramps of the differential, they could fit in both ways. There was the right side to build it, but for whatever reason, they put the other way around. So what happened, you know, because of that, the differential was working in an opposite 
manner. Instead of you know unlocking the wheels when you're backing off the throttle and locking the the, the wheels when you're putting the power down, I was doing the opposite. And they took you know f half season to find that out. So that was the last second, the second last race, the last race. So sorry, there was two races to go after that. It was Hockenheim, which I started on pole and finished second, and the last race was Barcelona. Sorry. Nürburgring, which I finished third, so was I was sort of you know very disappointed because if I did well in that year in F3000, my chances to get into F1 would be a lot higher. But because of that, you know, I think other chances didn't appear. But in the end of the day, I had that opportunity with Minardi, which almost turned out to be to be good. But in the end of the day, uh, didn't happen. Which was I was hired by Minardi. I did a shootout with another driver and they sort of chose me and everything was done. And then Gaston Mazzacani, a month later, came to Minardi to Giancarlo and said, listen, I had, I don't know, 10, 15 million dollars. I didn't have anything. And they took me out of, out of the seat in like, you know, late January. And, uh, you know, it was a very difficult thing because as a young driver, especially, you know, okay, I'm an F1 now. I done it, you know. I was very, very happy, you know, as anybody in that situation would be. And then a couple of weeks later, when you find yourself not in F1 anymore, not driving anywhere, because every other opportunity that I had, I sort of dropped because I was sort of hired by Minardi. So that year, which was 2000, the first six months, I didn't do anything. I just did a few tests here and there for a team that was drive, sorry, was building a car to race the 24 hours of Le Mans, which was Ascari. So okay, with Klaus Swart, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Ascari, the Klaus, what's his name again? Swart, yeah. Yeah, he he hired me to do some testing for them, so I was there for the first six months, and then uh, happens another thing which was very unusual. Back in 99, when all those things were happening, I was doing F3000, you know, test driving for Williams, almost getting trying to get a chance in F1 but back in the same time I went to two or three races at IndyCars in America I went there because back then you know that championship was awesome you had the cart the cart champ car version cart, as opposed yeah. to IRL which was still exactly building and, up and those point. were the days when Zanardi was driving for targets you know the races were just you know breathtaking and I thought to myself man this thing is more fun than F1 so I went there for about two or three races just to have a look around, you know, to introduce myself. And then, you know, uh, one of those guys that I met back in, in those trips I went to, to America to watch the IndyCar races, he called me and said, listen, Max, we are putting an IndyCar team together. That happened halfway through 2000. I was unemployed sort of thing. So he called me up and said, listen, we are putting a team together for the 2001 season. But we are already starting to test this year. Are you interested to come over to America and, uh, you know, be our driver for the, you know, testing and also to be racing the following year? And that for me was like a dream coming true. Kind of a bit late, you know, for my taste, but uh, was, okay, let's do it. So in a week, I packed it up, everything that I had in England. I was in England for about nearly four years back then. And I just jumped in the plane and I went to Indiana, actually to Chicago and uh, to drive for this team. The team that was that I was hired for was a team called, uh, I remember his name, Sigma. 
Yeah, Sigma. Sigma, this guy used to have a truck uh, washing uh, business or was a very rich guy back then. So he hired me and I did this testing for them. I was hired for them, had a contract and everything. So that was halfway through 2000 that that happened. When was early January in 2001, all the teams were meant to go to Fontana for the spring testing or presentations or things like this. And then the guy from Sigma, he called me up, said, listen, Max, there is a guy here called uh, Oreo Servia that has a big sponsorship from Telefonica and uh, basically happened pretty much the same thing that happened at Minority. I was hired to be driving, and then somebody with money showed up and sort of bought my seat. So anyway, when this guy called me up, it was like in a couple of days before the team's presentation at Fontana. So I called the guy, which he, he was sort of my lawyer in the States, which his name is... I forgot his name anyway. He said, listen, Max, did... did uh, Sigma sent to you a fax telling you not to go. We didn't have internet back in those days. And I said, listen, he didn't send me anything. And then he told me, listen, you got to have to go there because if you don't show up at Fontana, they're going to break your contract saying that you didn't turn up. So anyway, I went to Fontana knowing that I was out of, uh, out of a seat. So I got there. And uh, when I got there, they sent the fax to me. So... I was already in Los Angeles, and I thought to myself, you know what, I go to the track anyway. So I was walking around, and then another guy, which I never heard of, called Barry Brook, uh, which was already involved in cars for a long time, he introduced himself, said, listen, Max, I heard that uh, you're out of seat. We are putting a team together with uh, our zero. Are you interested? It was a very small... Actually, the team didn't exist in those days. So he offered me a drive, I had nothing, so I went to this team. So I, I drove for R0, not Sigma. So we started the 2001 season with the 2000 car. We didn't have the new car. We were the only team with the Mercedes engine, which Mercedes had, had pulled out the year before, so we didn't have any updates or anything. So it was a tough year, a very unfair competition for me but you know what it was great i learned a lot and uh, there was this race in portland that uh, i finished fourth there was a race that i almost won in cleveland that i started the third and i was leading the race and on the pit stop when i came to do my pit stop bruno junquera which was driving for ganassi he crashed the pit entry and his car stopped it right on my pit spot so when I came to do the pit stop, I had to do a drive-through because I couldn't pit. So I went from first to tenth or whatever, but that was a race that I had the chance to win. So it wasn't a very competitive year because of the equipment and everything, but it was a great, but it was a great experience for me and uh, it was something that I really, you know, enjoy thinking about those days too. Yeah. That was a great championship. I think that that period. That kart series was just outstanding. And Lito, in terms of the international opportunities that Max had, there's a lot of kind of almost moments, aren't there? Yeah. Um, the pace always always seemed to be there. Yeah. Um, it's just a bit, I guess, a bit frustrating that never quite had that season where there was a chance to sort of flick the switch, get regular wins and, and show that it could be a driver who could consistently run at the front. I have no doubt about it. Uh, yes, uh, Max has always... Uh, shown this 
uh, he has what it takes. Since the, his very first races in Brazilian Formula Ford, he was out of the out of the box. He was different from from those guys. And the funny thing uh, that he had no sponsorship, and but he had someone who made a car. Uh, it was not the best car, the Minelli one, and and he was there, and he was up there with the guys, and and then I think the first the first time I saw I, 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 when I met him, it was in a street race in Vitoria, and Minelli Jose Minelli is a is a a guy that car loves, builder yeah it's yeah a car builder yeah yeah but it's not. A, Kind of car yeah. build <laughs> because he he's not a he built car he builds cars but from from nothing just for from his passion and he built a car and then uh, I start to talk Minelli to now I I brought a new car here and I I I gave it to a new driver and then I went to talk to Max and and kept an eye it, it was different he was different and. He always was struggling with the sponsorship, and anyway, he still kept a good mood. And every time he had a, a chance to do it right, he did. Uh, but I think the, the real problem Max had was not finding uh, a real a real sponsorship. You know, because at those days, Formula One was already mostly a commercial operation. You know, he had a good chance in Petrobras, and he did very well with Petrobras in Formula 3, South American Formula 3, and then he went to to Germany, and he kind of uh, fell off the radar, and we didn't hear about him, and then sometimes uh, we would meet, and he would, would tell us things, the way things were, and then suddenly there was the ITC race, and then Formula 3000, but Formula 3000 was not to be uh, the way it should have been. Uh, he had good guys beside him, Paul Jackson, things like that, and people like that. But that diff, that cursed diff, you know, and things like that. But anyway, I think he's done more, much more than the average guys would have done with the chances and the, the fate he had. Is there ever any, any frustration when you look back at it, Max? Because there's there's lots of there's lots of drivers whose kind of career trajectory you got close to. So obviously you were kind of at the same place as Montoya was. You know, Servia went on to have a very long career in the US. I mean, well, he was back to a good driver, Servia, and still turns up in the Indy 500 and, and and does a good job. And then you know, with the opportunity with Weber, lots of drivers came through that. So you were you, you seem to be a driver who was almost in the right place so many times, but always just on the wrong side of the coin toss, if you like. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. And uh, to be quite honest, uh, that thing I just mentioned, you know, because I'm in this industry for so long, since I was 11 years old, I've been involved with that. We have seen pretty much everything. And uh, I also have seen a lot of drivers that got close to be in F1 or Indy cars or, or even close to be a professional racing car driver. And when they d don't achieve that, I see a lot of frustration and sometimes even anger towards you know, the sport or the situation or anything. To be quite honest, myself, I never had this sort of feeling. Uh, if I had some frustration as far, okay, I didn't race in F1, of course I have some frustration because I thought, I think that I had the, the skills to do it. 
and I would love to do that, and I think I was ready to, to do it. But in the same time, uh, I'm not talking about religion or anything. I think, you know, sometimes things happen in the way that sometimes you don't think which is a good thing, but maybe it's the best for you. When I didn't go to F1, I ended up going to America, which was a, not an easy task because of, you know, the car wasn't competitive or anything. But it was a good experience. From there, I went to Australia, you know, and I spent about six or seven years in Australia. And uh, to be quite honest, the thing that, you know, in Australia that make me the proudest the most is the fact that I was the first non-Australian or New Zealand Zealander that was a full-time driver in the V8 supercar. And then when I got there, uh, because of that, you know, I was the only one that wasn't Australian or from New Zealand. I thought to myself, man, those guys are going to bully me here because I'm not one of them. And I was so well treated, you know, I made so many friends and uh, I raced against, you know, those guys and I'm friends with all of them, the Kelly brothers, you know, my teammates, Radzic, Bergwijn, and Longhurst and so, so many others. So what I'm trying to say is, of course, I would like to have raced in F1. But I don't have any anger because I didn't do that. Because in some ways, perhaps F1 was the best thing for me. Maybe if I drove for Minardi in that 2000 season, who knows what could happen. I could be a world champion years later, or that could be my last year in motorsport altogether because it was a very small team as well. So for sure, I would like to have done things that I haven't you know, done back in my career. But... I don't feel like any frustration as far as not feeling bad because of that. I just would like to have that opportunity. If it didn't turn up, that's okay. Luckily, I found something else to do, which perhaps was even better for me. And like now, if you ask me, Max, would you like to be doing Indy cars or driving for, with all due respect for, I don't know, Toro Rosso and F1 or, or be winning races in stock cars? I like to be competitive. I like to win races. I don't like to win easy races, I like to win difficult races, like, you know, driving with guys that are very skilled to do it. So I'm pretty happy where I am, I'm very thankful where I am, and also very thankful to everything that happened in my career. I don't look back and say, ah, I was really unlucky because I didn't drive the F1 for Minardi in 2000, for example. Didn't happen, might have a reason for it. My career kept going and still going. And uh, so I, if I complain about anything as far as my career is concerned, I think it would be very bad for me, you know, to do such a thing. I'm very thankful and very grateful to everything. And also, you know, because of that, things like working on TV alongside like a guy that is Lito, for example, that I know Lito for over 20 years. First of all, we are friends. You know, we have been friends for a long time. We got even closer in the last five years when I started to work in the same studio as him. And uh, he's someone that I respect a lot as a, as a journalist and as a person. So everything happens for a reason, I believe, in these sort of things. And uh, so I have no regrets. Everything was worthwhile and uh, I'm very proud of everything. And to be here and still going, I'm very happy about it. So Lito, basically... All of all of Max's career was just preparation to be able to work alongside you. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, uh, there's a kind of, of of joke, and when he wins, I say, "Did you notice how this kid improved since he started to work with us?" <laughs> and he does that on the mic. You know, he doesn't do it like a, a private conversation. He does in the broadcasting. So I have heard that before, and uh, I have to agree with them. You know. <laughs> 
Sounds like a great learning experience. Well, it's been great to hear about about your career, and, and one of the reasons I wanted to speak to you is because you've had quite an unusual career trajectory. I don't think there's anyone who's quite ticked all the boxes you have in terms of what you've done, so it's been fascinating to hear the story. So thanks, Max Wilson and Lito Cavalcanti. And I can suggest everyone check out autosport.com for all the latest news on Formula 1 and the world of motorsport and our Plus subscriber area. For a small fee, you can read the world's best motorsport journalist, plus occasionally myself. I wouldn't put myself in that category. All sorts of features and columns there. Check out Sister Titles, F1 Racing Magazine out monthly, and motorsport.com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.